Hello, everyone, and welcome to Mountain Meister. This is Ben speaking, your host. And I just want to welcome everybody back to Mountain Meister because we are starting brand new episodes today. Before we welcome our guest, I just want to remind you that I will be running a marathon for the Challenged Athletes Foundation. They are a fantastic organization providing support for physically challenged athletes. I am raising money for this organization, and if you donate, a couple of great perks. First of all, you'll be entered to win a Jansport backpack, and if you're one of the top three donors, you are guaranteed to win one of these Jansport multi-day hiking packs. Also, I will send you a personalized thank you message. I'm not going to tell you what exactly it is, but for the people who already donated, they know, and everybody seems to really like it. So when you donate, just email us at admin at mtnmeister.com and I will respond to your email with a really entertaining thank you message. All right, now to the show. Who are the Mountain Meisters? Committing to the goal and galvanizing you and your team behind that one single focus. Being at peace with that fear and being okay with it. You gain a real appreciation for your life and for what you have. Learn about their extreme lives on rock, snow, and ice five days a week with your hosts, Russell Wilcox and Ben Shank. Hello, Meister fans. Welcome to the show. This is Ben. Hey, guys. It's Russell. Today, we welcome Dr. John Kudrowski. John is an author, speaker, ski mountaineer, and geographer. In 2011, John became the first person to camp and spend the night on top of Colorado's 55 official 14ers, peaks over 14,000 feet. He achieved the feat from June 23rd to September 28th, 2011, a stretch of only 95 days from start to finish. In May of 2012, Kudrowski successfully climbed Mount Everest while witnessing and surviving one of the worst tragedies on Everest where seven deaths occurred that night. And more recently, John just completed a project where he skied 20 of the highest volcanoes in the Cascades and slept on the ones where weather permitted. <laughs> John, welcome. Hey, guys. How are you? Great. We're, uh, we're so happy that you're on the show today. We got a ton to talk about. And I'm not really sure what's more impressive out of all the things that you've done <laughs> recently. I mean, you climbed Everest. You were sleeping on the top of these summits. And some of the summits are just, it's like a rock. And you just have to put your tent on this angled rock. <laughs> I don't even get really how it's done. But uh, you got a book to talk about it. And just out of curiosity, there are 55 of these uh, 14ers is what they call them, mountains over 14,000 feet in Colorado. When you started this journey, did you know that there were 55? Yes. Um, <laughs> you know, I, the 14ers were something that I grew up near because I grew up in Vail, Colorado. And, uh, you know, I set, first set my eyes on some of them when I was like a 10, 12-year-old kid just hiking out of kind of out my backyard of Vail and getting up on some of the, the local smaller mountains and some trails and then have my parents take me out on hikes. I'd from a distance got to see some of them and i kind of said to myself well shoot it'd be kind of fun to try to start climbing some of those and uh i was taken on my first 14 year when i was like 14 years old it was mount of the holy cross near my home and uh just enjoyed it really had a lot of fun as a young kid and then when you're up on top of that mountain you see some of the other 14ers in the distance and so from that point when i was young i i just said you know i think someday i want to climb all of them and that's kind of how i got started and you climbed and you slept 
And I saw one headline which read, Summit Slumberer Snoozes into the Record Books, which is probably one of the biggest understatements that I've ever heard in my life. You did 55 of these peaks over a stretch of 95 days. For those of you who are really good at math, that's one every two days, even less. How did you do it? Well, you know, yeah, it took a lot of perseverance and then a little bit of trip planning and, uh, you know, and, and then going back to my youth was, you know, I had mentioned I saw a lot of these peaks as a young kid. And then as soon as I got my learner's permit at the age of 15 years old, I went out in my first summer and climbed like 25 of these things, most of them by myself. So I'd hike them alone. And so anyway, by the time I turned 18, I had climbed all of them once. And so to get to know those peaks at a young age and then I've kind of followed that up with other endeavors throughout the late 1990s and early 2000s. Um, so I got to learn a lot about the peaks and understand the routes, understand the layout of the mountains, and then really understand if you could possibly put a tent on top. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of how I got started. And then, yeah, and so then actually what happened was uh, in 2011, I was a professor and I lost my job. I was laid off. And I got back in the summer and I called my good friend Chris Tomer, who helped me co-author this book. And I said, hey, man, I I think you could fit a tent on every single summit. What do you think? And he goes, I don't know. You're crazy. And <laughs> a few years before that, we had spent the night on, on Mount Elbert because I was getting ready to, to go climb Mount McKinley in Alaska. And I found that climbing these mountains and spending the nights on the summits would acclimate your body for bigger challenges, uh-huh. at least start acclimating your body. And so that was one reason um, why I decided to start sleeping on summits, kind of dating back to eight, 10 years ago when I started doing international expeditions. And the other reason was that uh, I was an athlete growing up. So I was a football and a basketball player. And I found that if I was out hiking mountains all summer long, I'd come back to my fall practices and my winter basketball seasons and I was in incredible shape. And that's kind of really how I got this bug to to do the 14ers, but then do them in a different way by spending the night there. This is a theme that the listeners are going to hear throughout the whole interview. It's actually an acronym that John made up, I believe. It's N-O-D, no off days. And did you make that up? Well, it was a small group of uh, us friends that actually threw basketball growing up that we all would go out and um, train together. So we'd work out, we'd play basketball together, we'd play in AAU tournaments. We also were, a bunch of us were on the football team. And it started in high school to where like, we all didn't want to do you know, no drugs, no alcohol, nothing but hard work. And we also said to ourselves, okay, if we take a day off, there's somebody somewhere else that's not taking a day off. And when we meet them, they will win. And we don't want that to happen. And so we created this group called the, yeah, the NOD at the time, which actually had another acronym called the the Nation of Domination. <laughs> but we wanted to be a little bit more scaled back. And so we called it the no off days philosophy. And if you have that philosophy, then most of the time, hard work's going to pay off and you'll be successful. Mm-hmm. And so I apply that to mountaineering too now in yes. terms of training and working out and working hard every day. You're definitely an interesting guy with having the mountaineering and basketball and football with you. <laughs> A lot of the people that we actually bring on the show we asked them how they got into mountaineering or how they got into climbing. And a few of them actually say, well, you know, I never made any of the teams in high school. And so <laughs> I just decided to start this and I found out how much I loved it. And you were actually incredible at basketball. You were on a Division One basketball team. I dreamed of that. I was uh, I played basketball and tennis, which are actually another weird combination. So... Did you have any friends that really did that similar combination to you? A few, like growing up, actually, it was like, 
you know, like I mentioned, I, I was able to go like every summer and, and start climbing these peaks. And then at times my parents were a little bit concerned, Hey, why are you going by yourself? You know, take the dog or <laughs> take some of your friends. And at first some of my friends were kind of like, you're nuts. Like you're going up there climbing these things or hiking them. And then I said, well, Hey, come with me. And they say, okay. And then I, at the time would tell them, you know, okay, bring this certain gear X, Y, and Z, or what do you need to pack? And so it started off kind of like that. And I found that taking friends was even more fun. And then, uh, you know, teaching somebody how to, how to do it, you know, in terms of even if we were doing rope or if we were climbing a certain route and we found out the day was really hard, like a 12 to 14 hour day. And that would then again, translate back onto the basketball court around the football field. Yeah. And so it was, it was more or less like me getting people around me to, to go do these things with me and then seeing how much it benefited us on the field. Yeah, absolutely. I want to return back to the, the 14ers for a little bit because this thing does kind of blow my mind. Was there a point throughout this entire endeavor that you thought, you know, I might not be able to make it? You know, I always thought I was a pretty good planner, so I would lay out the peaks, but I would say to myself, well, yeah, shoot, if I don't, and this is kind of throughout my current book was it tells a story you know it talks about adversity and saying well shoot if i didn't get up on this peak then i probably wouldn't have been able to go and do the next one or complete a set of peaks to be finished in time because then the winter was coming or um yeah there's a lot of times where there was a little bit of doubt but for me it was i felt like my back was against the wall and i was like you know i at the time i don't know what i'm going to do next this fall because i'm out of a job as a professor so i better just get all these done so i can write about it and create a book and then see what sort of other career opportunities come my way and so i i felt like i just didn't have any other choice and uh was able at times to rattle off like you know my typical morning commute was get up in the morning and shoot sunrise photos from a summit eat a power bar drink some water and then descend pack my tent up descend to my vehicle make a big breakfast there drive to the next trailhead kind of watch the weather and then because i had climbed a lot of these peaks before i already knew how long it would take me to make it to the top so then i would pack my gear carefully and i would basically hike up to the next summit spend the night and repeat it again and if there was a stretch of good weather yeah i had some really incredible streaks towards the end of this project in like september where there was 13 peaks in 15 days and stuff like that and so yeah it was amazing just knocking out 14ers like it's your job (laughs) i guess it was your job and speaking of that (laughs) you you said that the fact that you kind of needed this or felt like you needed this because you were out of luck in other areas that kind of pushed you do you think if we look at it from a different perspective do you think you would have been as successful as you were had you not had your back against the wall like you said um i mean it was a little easier to relax actually towards the end because i did actually found out that i got my contract back for year two as a professor in washington and so then they needed me back up at school and actually one of our professors in the department was ill and they needed me to come back and fill in by early october and so i'd missed the first like three weeks of school but my (laughs) chair was very nice and he said well hey you know we need you to come back even though we know next year you're gonna climb everest in the spring we'll give you a two term contract which was like two quarters Mm -hmm. and uh but you got to be back here by like next week and this was near the end of the project and i had maybe like six peaks left in a week and so part of that was well now i do have a job to get back to so i better finish them or else and even that's kind of where some of the adversity came in. I, With four peaks remaining, I was up on top of a mountain called Harvard. It's the third highest peak in Colorado. And we had an episode, or I had an episode with lightning up there. And my tent got struck by lightning, oh. and I got knocked off my feet, but I wasn't in the tent. Oh, my and gosh. I survived. But, uh, yeah, I was kind of threading the needle. But then what was really significant <laughs> was the storm cleared, and I hiked down a ways until the storm cleared. But then I knew that if I didn't go back up to finish that peak – 
that the three peaks remaining after that, I would not have time to get done because I would have had to waste a whole nother day. Uh-huh. And so, yeah, I went back up to the top and actually called my mom and told her I was okay. And she said, what are you nuts? You're staying up there? And I said, well, yeah, I kind of have to. I got to finish these things. So, oh. yeah, at times there were certain circumstances that pushed me to the limit. Yeah, no kidding. What does it feel like to get struck by lightning? I didn't know that. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it, it narrowly missed me. I mean, it hit the tent and he felt these charges like being in a power plant, like St. Elmo's fire, kind of like the <laughs> buzzing and the charges building. <laughs> you know, it's going to strike. And then I basically jumped down the summit block and was running down a trail. And then the lightning hit the top of the mountain, maybe 50 feet above me and knocked me off my feet. And then I realized I was still alive. So oh then I got up, kept running. So it was like a bomb went off. So when you're planning to go on this trip, did it ever cross your mind that you will be the highest point with your tent sitting on the high, like on the top of the mountain, and you're just basically a bullseye for yeah. lightning? I wouldn't even even thought of that until right. it actually happened. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we knew it was in the because um, Chris Tomer, good climbing friend and partner of mine, I had him add his meteorology descriptions to some of the book was that we knew this was in the middle of monsoon season because i you know i run these summer basketball camps till the end of june so it's you know in fact the anniversary of uh, three years ago on the 23rd will mark three years since i started that summer of sleeping on the summits and so yeah it's getting into the end of june then the monsoon season comes so we knew that was going to be an issue is dealing with thunderstorms and yeah you know to talk about failure actually is uh, during that summer, I actually climbed 73 14ers in 95 days because there were 15 times that I failed. Mm. And then I went to the top. I either couldn't get the tent up because oh. you couldn't see anything or it was blowing too hard or it was thunder and lightning coming. And I'd have to just turn around and run back down or get out of the way. And oh. yeah, so I failed a lot. Wow. That part of the story I didn't know either. This is incredible. Okay, so we do have to move on, though. And you mentioned Everest, and I mentioned Everest in the bio. Let's talk about Everest. What makes this feat such a a chilling story is that you were 800 feet away from the summit of Everest, and you turned around. And as I mentioned, this was a very dangerous expedition to Everest for a couple of reasons. Weather was one. Crowding on the mountain was another and you turn out to make a fantastic decision, and that is to turn around, turn away from the summit. I'm sure this must have been probably one of the most difficult decisions you've ever made in your life. Yes and no. Yes, because you are, you're up there and you're really close. But then no, because it was blowing so hard, and so I got knocked off my feet, and then you kind of turned, I kind of turned to a couple of my teammates and said, you know, this is no way. Let's go down. And it was more or less get down as fast as you can, otherwise you'll probably get killed you didn't really feel it till after getting down thinking oh man i was so close it's a pretty unbelievable story too uh actually you can check out a six-part series on dateline where they really go into detail and they actually use john as one of the experts up there and one of the the better examples and then they use some of the inexperienced climbers up there as well so could you talk about what Everest is actually like since you've been there so recently? My dad actually climbed Everest back in 1991. And there was oh, essentially, wow. yeah, there was like, I think 10 people who summited that year, maybe 20. And uh-huh. he talks about the style of climbing a lot. And then he also talks about just how it's so much different now. And just talk about the types of people that climb it. And you don't have to go too much in detail, but... 
just to give the I listeners an idea. Yeah, I'll give. Yeah, I'll, I'll explain a little bit more if you're not familiar. This is to the listeners. If you're not familiar with this already, there's a lot of people out there who want to climb Everest. Let's get that out there. And when the season rolls around, the people who have the money to do it maybe won't get the proper training that they need to do it. Um, and we'll still attempt a summit for one reason or another. Maybe it's an ego thing. And this eventually turns into a really crowded situation on the mountain, which is potentially dangerous. So let's hear your perspective on what it's like since you've been there, John. Yeah, you know, it's a mountain unlike any other one I've climbed on. I've been on now, uh, well, going on my 12th international expedition coming up here as I leave in a few days, actually for Africa. But, uh, it's a mountain that's very commercialized and because it's the highest mountain in the world, it's sought after. So you contribute, you know, the fact that it's a sought after mountain with the fact that the climbing season is very small and short to where literally there's only maybe five to, to 10 good days where you can actually hike to the summit because the winds are so strong most of the year. And so if you've got, let's say 500 people that want to go to the summit, there's just a, a small window and it turns into a, a traffic jam, um, but it's also commercialized. So people will pay thousands of dollars through permits and logistical help. And, you know, some people that do go maybe aren't qualified because it's a dream. And I'm never going to say anybody isn't, uh, you know, allowed to go after their dreams. Mm-hmm. So people, it's just the reality of Everest. People are going to pay other people that can either guide them or help them to climb the mountain. And because of that, it's become more commercialized than not. Um, just to give you a good comparison example, I went and climbed Gasherbrum 2 last year, which is in Pakistan. And it's one of the 14 highest mountains in the world. And that mountain is very non-commercialized and you know, less than 40 people to, to climb the mountain. And because of that, you have to do more things on your own. You have to put routes in. You have to put ropes in. You have to establish your camps on your own. And it's much less expensive because of that. Um, so that's more what some climbers would maybe say is more of a real climbing experience. Whereas when you go to Everest, there's already people that put routes in for you, put ropes up for you, um, and stuff like that. But part of it, you know, it probably is a good thing because it keeps it a little bit more organized than if you had you know, 400 people going to climb the mountain and they were all trying to put their own routes in. Mm-hmm. That really wouldn't make sense. So that's kind of one perspective on Everest. You mentioned uh, in the Dateline series that we watched that you had dreamed of going to Everest your whole life, or basically since you were a kid and you actually knew that there was a mountain that was the biggest one in the world. But after years and years of preparation, like you said, you you were sleeping on the peaks to write the book and and achieve this goal, but it was also to help your body get used to acclimatizing and and different factors like that. Did you actually know what the situation was like to the extent then when you actually arrived at Everest? Yeah, a little bit. And I think that's because I've read books like Into Thin Air or, you know, there's a lot of literature that's out there about Everest. And then a good friend of mine, Alan Arnett, who does his alanarnett.com website, covers the Everest seasons. You know, for the last 10 years, I've always followed his website to follow the teams and read about what it's like now and stuff. So I wasn't that surprised. I mean, I was surprised when I still, when I got to base camp, cause it's still overwhelming. There's hundreds of people everywhere. So you're just kind of like, wow, this is a lot like Disneyland, you know, it's pretty busy, <laughs> but then you, you kind of sit back and say, well, this is the reality of what it's like here mm-hmm. and everything, you know, and that's one of the things is 
you know, a lot of the Sherpas that help the Westerners come in as, you know, a majority of the people are there because they hire the Sherpas to help them. Like you said, they're everyday folks that, you know, doctors, lawyers, teachers, they have this dream to go. And if they can either afford it or raise the money to go, then they will go and have a lot of assistance. They try to control the, um, you know, how the organization of the mountain goes. And that's just the reality of commercialization on the mountain. So it makes it more crowded. It makes it more, I guess they try to make it, they, they try to tame it, but you can never tame the mountain mm-hmm. fully, obviously. Does it make Everest feel like less of an accomplishment when you see all those people up there? I would say no, because everyone's got their own sort of their goal with getting to the top. And mm-hmm. so you're still going to put the time in. So whatever you put into it, you're going to, you're going to get out of it and everything for me at the time. Cause that was, you know, a couple years ago now that was for me was the first expedition that we ever had like a, a base camp cook or like a cooking camp too, cooking meals for our team and nutrition's important though. So I, I think those sort of necessities are um, important to have. But other necessities, like some people can go and you can hire a personal Sherpa to carry your own personal gear. So they'll cook meals in your other tents for you. You'll pack your stuff up and give it to the Sherpa and they'll carry it up the mountain for you. They'll establish your camps up on the mountain and stuff. Mm-hmm. And those sort of necessities, I, as being kind of my own expedition guide or leader for a number of years, I'd never had um, any sort of assistance before on trips. So I would go put my own tents in, cook my own meals. So when I got to Everest, having at least team Sherpas that help put some of our camps up higher and having a cook and base camp and in camp two, I was like, wow, this is great. It actually makes it easier because mm-hmm. I don't have to do those things. And I've been doing those on all the trips that I've been on to save money though. I did not hire a personal Sherpa because I wanted to save, you know, like 15 or $20,000. Yeah. And so when it came down to the second attempt where we didn't make it the first time and a number of our team members quit and went home, one of the lead Sherpas that oversaw the team of personal Sherpas said to me, well, shoot, I have nobody to climb with because everybody went home. And so we decided to just team up together and climb. And so in a sense, I, at that time, I kind of had a quote unquote personal Sherpa, but it wasn't, it was more of a friendship because we had been climbing together the whole trip. And, you know, I would still pack my own gear up and carry all my stuff myself. Yeah, definitely. Well, congratulations on your summit. It's great to hear that you were able to get that second attempt because you were so close the first time. Uh, just a quick comment. I heard you say, and I think this is a quote by another person that said, there are no shortcuts to any place worth going. And I think that speaks to the accomplishment of Mount Everest, you know, when you put so much work into something, the more work you put in, the greater reward you get out of it. Yeah, definitely. And you've, so you've summited Everest, like you said, you summited Gasherbrum too, like we were talking about earlier, all the 14ers. And you also just completed the 20 highest volcanoes in the Northwest (laughs) and slept on a bunch of them too. So you'll have another book coming out there. So when you create a goal in your head, and you're thinking about something to do. What are you looking for out of that goal? Like when you when you have a goal, are you looking for an accomplishment uh, to push your body, or is it more a mental goal? Or I guess where do these come from? Because I just I would never even think to do some of the things that you're doing. Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both. Like a little bit of man, I can't sit still. But then, uh, yeah, I want to kind of do something to inspire as well. Through my basketball camps, too, I mentor to kids. And then I do a lot of speaking to the youth as well. And then even just the everyday person, I want them to know that, you know, some of us get caught up in just a routine and maybe also have reasons to hate life or hate 
a situation you're in. Actually, I say I do use these mountains to inspire and to, to show people that you can step out of your own little uh, bubble that you're in and you can choose to you know, do something exciting. And it could be something as simple as uh, an average person in life that's maybe working a job nine to five to just uh, pick up a new hobby, give something to give yourself excitement. And so I think for me, these projects are that way is that I'm like, well, you know, I'm, I'm not satisfied with maybe just climbing them, but hey, let's go ski off of a bunch of them. And it's a blast. It's tons of fun. Yeah, definitely like my last book, doing the photography and being able to show people certain views and certain photos and pictures and shots that hardly anyone's going to get to see because you know a lot of people maybe are uh, familiar with like an alpine start which is starting early in the morning to hike to a summit because you don't want to be worried about storms and then come down but what does it look like at night either when the sun's going down or when a storm's rolling in and so i get certain photos and shots and can tell stories that are a little bit outrageous i like it yeah it's very unique and uh, you switch it up <laughs> Being so experienced in all of these different activities, we need a gear recommendation from you. What kind of gear would you recommend to our listeners? Well, uh, for me, it's, I think, because I get to see these locations with my own eyes, is that having eye protection up there is important because the UV and the sunlight's pretty bad. And so, you know, when I'm on a glacier traveling or if I'm up on a ridge line, I've got usually my Zeal Optics, the sunglasses. I've got a, a lot of different versions and then goggles as well. So when I'm skiing down, the, the Zeal Optics uh, HD camera goggle or even the tram line goggle are some of my favorite pieces of eyewear for my ski descents. Great. We will throw that resource on our website, mtnmeister.com, on your Meister profile page. And to close, John, we want to talk about one last topic and you talk a lot about stepping outside of your comfort zone in a lot of the talks that you do and how meaningful it is to your life. Can you talk about the rewards of stepping outside of your comfort zone? Yeah, I mean, I think it's everything because uh, human beings are such creatures of habit. I mean, even I'm a kind of a creature of habit, but I think in order to be successful, you have to accept and embrace being uncomfortable on some level. And if you're always just content with being comfortable or doing the same exact thing every day, you're never going to be able to take whatever you're doing to the next level and no one's going to even notice you. And that's one of the other things I tell kids is like, do something outrageously good so that you get noticed so that you can be successful in life and kind of chart your path and, and achieve your goals. Yeah. And that's going to make a huge difference if you do. Yeah, and if you're a kid out there and you're not really sure where to step outside of your comfort zone, you just have to find someone like John who is doing it and just learn from them and see see what's going on. Uh, like you said, you dragged all your basketball friends up there, and I'm sure they had a blast. It's hard to to bring someone up a mountain and then they stand on the peak and then they're like, oh, that really wasn't as cool as I thought. <laughs> Usually that doesn't happen. So. Yeah. But there has been times kids go up to a summit. We've taken some through different projects that I've done working with the youth or even I do some guiding professionally uh, around here in Vail. And we get somebody to a summit that said, sometimes they say, well, yeah, that, that was the hardest thing I've ever done physically. But then they also get to the top and say, I'm glad I did it. And then some of them will even say, oh, well, it's not as hard as I thought it would be. It was hard, but it's not as hard as I thought it would be. And I'm really glad I came and did it. You look at some of these peaks, especially a lot of the ones that you're looking at, and they just look 
impossible in some cases. And so it's, it's good to hear that from you and uh, also from a lot of these kids who are probably bringing up for the first few times uh, up their mountains. So we really enjoyed having you on the show, John. For all our listeners out there, you can check out everything that we talked about on our website, mtnmeister.com. John has one book out now, Sleeping on the Summits. He'll have a, another book, which he's not exactly sure what it's called Name yet, but pending. it'll be close to skiing and sleeping on the summits. <laughs> so definitely check those out. We'll put the uh, resources for those on our website as well. So thanks again for coming on the show, John. Thanks for having me, guys. Hello, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that episode with John Kodrowski. He has a pretty neat story, I'd say. And if you like neat stories like these, we have all sorts of them. So if you're new to Mountain Meister, check out our other episodes. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, and your phone will automatically download the newest episode. In our next episode, we will have Brendan Leonard on the show. Brendan runs a website called Semirad.com and also does some other journalistic work in the outdoors industry. And he also lived out of a van for a few years. Wait till you hear how he got that idea. It's pretty funny. Until next time, I'm Ben Shank. Thank you for joining us. 